Last week we began our look at uh, Paul's marvelous and detailed list of Christian virtues, which we find in Romans 12, 9 and following. And we said that these things describe what a Christian looks like. They're certainly what we're supposed to look like. These are the distinguishing characteristics of authentic Christianity, true godliness, evident spiritual fruit that one should be able to observe in a godly life. And Paul's description then serves as a standard, something uh, we can use to measure ourselves with, which I promise you will give you goals to strive for in your Christian life if you read this section and take it seriously. Nobody, I mean nobody, looks at this and says, oh, yeah, oh, that's, that's a wonderful description of me. <laughs> People don't have that experience when they read this chapter. So we can all find room for improvement here, so don't be discouraged. Never be discouraged by divine standards, even when you fall way short of them. Um, and don't just throw up your hands. It is here to help you evaluate and move forward. How did Paul put it in Philippians chapter 3, verse 13? He says, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, what? I reach forward to what lies ahead. I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So press on. Anything worthwhile in life requires effort, pressing forward to achieve it. So just do the work that is required, that's all. So don't get discouraged when you read this stuff. You measure your life by it and move forward towards it. Now, of course, the foundation for all Christian virtues, which we looked at last week, is love, agape love, divine love. Love that gives, love that always seeks the best for the one loved. Love, we said last time, is consistently and faithfully acting for the good of another person. That's really the biblical definition, if you sort of summarize it all. To be right, love has to be free of pretense. It must be genuine. So Paul says, verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy, no masks. Agape love is not something to fake. In fact, if you're faking it, that's not what it is. The essence of it is genuine concern for the other, for the good of the one love. There's no room for fakery in agape love. Genuine love doesn't allow for it. So the goal then for all of us is to make love genuine. It's got to be the real thing. And you can see that that's not primarily an emotional thing. It can't be. The Bible does not describe agape love in emotional terms. But always in terms of commitment to act for the other person's benefit, for their good. Emotions are just too fickle to be entrusted with something as valuable and as precious as love. Now, we talked all about love last week, so let's move forward here, and I think we can say that all the other virtues or qualities described in this paragraph really flow out of love. Love is the wellspring of Christian virtues. And immediately following the admonition to let love be without hypocrisy, Paul immediately takes us into the area of moral decision-making. Verse 9, the second half, he says, Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. This is not only a godly perspective, always. It is a correction for those who let love slide. There's a tendency when we love people to let it slide into a sentimentality that ignores right and wrong. And it's interesting in Scripture how often love is immediately followed with admonitions to truth or moral principle. 
So right away, when he says, let love be without hypocrisy, he says, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Because you don't want love to slip into a mode where suddenly, because you love someone, you approve of immorality or wickedness in any way, shape, or form. It's not okay to sin because we love someone. You have to find that very core and important balance there. And Jesus, of course, is our perfect model. Jesus loves sinners. During his ministry, he reached out to wicked people. He blessed them. He dined with them. He did them favors. He treated them with the respect that is due to all who are made in the image of God. That's love. But he never compromised on sin, ever. He didn't pretend that sin was okay or understandable or, well, you know, in your circumstances, I can really see why this might be something you need to be involved with. He loved sinners as sinners, which means he, he loved them as people that needed salvation, that needed repentance. And he always brought that to bear in every situation. But he didn't withhold love, which is the commitment to the good of others, right? He labored to do what is best for sinners. And what's the best thing you can do for a sinner? Restore them to God, right? Bring them the gospel, the good news. That's the best thing for anyone is to be restored in a right relationship with God. That's the very best thing. And that's what Jesus sought to do. So love is never inconsistent with zeal for holiness. They belong together, not when love and holiness are understood biblically. So in Romans 12.10, the sentence after love is about having the mind of God as regards his good and evil. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Abhor is not a word I hear very often in daily conversation. It's not a word people use a lot anymore. As our language keeps getting simpler and simpler, you lose good words like that. But abhor has a very good meaning. It means not just don't like it or, or sort of stay away from it. To abhor something is to be um, grossed out by it. Yeah, that's an official way to say it. It means to regard with horror, to shrink away from, to detest. Think of the most revolting, awful, gross thing you've ever seen, something that makes you recoil with disgust, and that is how you should regard evil. Evil is not something you play with. It's not an alternative lifestyle. It's not a foible. I like that word foible. It sounds so innocent. You know, I have these foibles. It's not an amusing weakness. It is rebellion against our Creator, a holy and just God, our good Creator, the living God. Evil is rebellion against him. And about him, the Bible says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. We have to have God's perspective on sin. That's really what he's saying, which is to abhor it. God detests evil. It says in the Old Testament, God's eyes are too pure to approve of evil, and that's exactly the attitude we're supposed to have. And when we find that we do not abhor it, we know we have some work to do, right? We're not where we should be if sin, any kinds of sin, is, is a little thing to us. If it's small to us, then something's wrong with us. We need to do some soul work. Arthur Pink, the old uh, Calvinist theologian, he tried to put sin in perspective with these words. He said, we may take a survey of everything in and on the earth and we cannot find anything so vile as sin. 
the basest and most contemptible thing in this world has some degree of worth in it as being the workmanship of God. But sin and its foul streams have not the least part of worth in them. Sin is wholly evil without the least mixture of good, vileness in the abstract. Its heinousness appears in its author, and he quotes 1 John 3.8, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. Sin is his trade, and he practices it incessantly. Sin's enormity is seen in what it has done to man. It has completely ruined his nature and brought him under the curse of God. Sin is the source of all our miseries, all unrighteousness and wretchedness are its fruits. There is no distress of the mind, no anguish of the heart, no pain of the body, but is due to sin. All the miseries which mankind grows under, groans under are to be ascribed to sin. It is the cause of all penalty. And he quotes Jeremiah 4.18, Thy way and thy doings have procured these things unto thee. This is thy wickedness because it is bitter, because it reacheth unto thine heart. Had there been no sin, there would have been no wars, no national calamities, no prisons, no hospitals, no insane asylums, no cemeteries. Yet, he asks, who lays these things to heart? Who really takes it as seriously as it is? Some of the imagery in the Bible used to describe sin include things like a rotting corpse or a gangrenous limb or putrefying sores or dung or dog vomit in, in Peter. talks about it like that. You know, I saw a dog when I was a little kid, throw up under a bed. And then I wasn't prepared for what followed when he started to eat it again. I mean, that just really did the end. And so when I think of revulsion and violence, what do you, you guys are moving a lot. And when I think of something that's revolting, I mean, I, I, I flash back to when I was about six at my neighbor's house and watched that dog lick up his own vomit under the bed. I mean, it was like, <laughs> that was pretty horrifying to me. But uh, the stench of an open grave, Romans chapter 3 describes. Uh, those are images, just images to give us some idea of the revulsion of sin and what it should be, what it is to God. Why is there yucky things in the world? Maybe to give us a flavor of what detesting something is so that we know. Conversely, he says we should cling to what is good. You know, clinging to dog vomit is not a great thing to do. But... Clinging to what is good, that makes sense. That's, that's something good about that. We live in a day when there's so much corruption blended with what should be wholesome. You have to be really careful to cling to what is good. You have to strive for that. You have to look at mixed things and say, you know, there's too much evil here to even have anything to do with that. And you have to find what's good and cling to that, what's truly wholesome and pure. Don't accept evil on any terms because it's revolting to God and should be revolting to us. The wholesome, the upright, the true, and the pure. Cling to what is good. Delight in what is good. Satan would love us to think there's more pleasure in wickedness. You know, personally, I don't believe that. I don't think, I mean, sin can be fun. I, I understand that. I know that. Then there may be a certain kind of pleasure in that, but it's such a tainted pleasure. It has that seedy quality to it. It's unsatisfying ultimately because of that. It's, it's something's wrong when you try to find pleasure in sin. But there is real pleasure in good. I know that. Peace and security and true happiness and contentment and the joy of real love and the pleasure of God's smile and all of that, there's so much good in good that's, that evil can't ever do. Evil has these pleasures, captivating pleasures, pleasures that can even 
twist and capture a soul and, and uh, create a habitual commitment to finding that kind of pleasure, but good pleasures are, are more robust and lasting and, and full and wonderful. So don't get stuck down here when there's all this great stuff up there. God is all about pleasure, you know. Psalm 16, in thy right hand there are pleasures forever, it says. Saints don't endure, we don't endure good. Oh, I'm going to be good. Oh, man, man. We're not like people starve for pleasure. A saint delights in God and all the joys that God intends for us to have and rejoices in them and delights in them. God made a good world. And though it's been twisted and perverted and cursed, there's still a lot of just pure good to delight yourself in. Wonderful good. So that word cling, cling to what is good, is a very strong word. You know, its root meaning is glue. You should be glued to good. It's the word Jesus used in Matthew 19.5 about marriage. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave, that's the exact same word, to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. Cleave, cling. Shrink away from that putrefying stench of evil and cling, hold tight to what is good. That's what he's saying. Good and evil. You know, those are terms that have almost become irrelevant in modern culture. The idea of good and evil, you don't hear people talk in those terms too often. Curiously, after September 11th, we had a brief time where the whole culture kind of remembered those words, but that's already fading. And there's already biological explanations and psychological explanations and this whole different mode has come in to interpret the events and what people are going through and what was done and why it was done and all of that. But it's really hard to explain a bin Laden in psychological and biological terms only without thinking in terms of evil. When you see that video of him sitting there smiling and laughing about how some of the guys on the planes didn't even know they were giving their lives. They thought they were hijacking him somewhere or something. And, and he's, he thinks that's kind of funny how he got these guys to get killed. I mean, that's evil. But already, like I said, that's fading away. The reality is that good and evil are, are categories of thought and relating to the world that have been divinely built into us. Every human being thinks in moral terms, right and wrong. Even people that claim not to believe in right and wrong are passionate about right and wrong. Just try plagiarizing from their books and see what happens. They, they have a, a visceral, that's wrong, reaction to that kind of thing. Steal something from their house. See how they, oh, I see, well, it was a mere biological event that occurred over there. Somebody had a certain bend. It doesn't work like that. They get angry because either wrong has been done or they get wrong about, uh, angry about some political thing or whatever, right and wrong. They, they talk in those terms even when they don't believe in them because they're built that way. We all are. So for us, who know there is a good and evil, the issue comes down to a definition. How do you define good and evil? How do you know what to cling to and what to abhor? Because you might find a delight in that lower, seedier, more wicked element. Well, maybe that's good. Because, you know, I was told when I was young, and we actually were told this when we were young, if it feels good, do it. That was a real thing people actually said back in the 60s when we were kids, when I was a kid. A very young kid. Um, I was. I was a very young kid back in the 60s. But if it feels good, do it. What's wrong with that? Well, some people feel good about cruelty and oppression and murder, right? They really find their kicks that way. So that can't be the ultimate 
arbiter of what is right or wrong or good or evil. How about the old, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, it's good. See, that's sort of, that's the cover. When you say it feels good, do it. They say, what about people that enjoy murdering people? Well, then the response to that, if you're a proper pagan, is to say, well, as long as I don't hurt anybody, then it's good. People who say that usually mean, when they say hurt, they mean like causing someone to bleed or removing a limb from their body or sending them to the hospital. That's what they mean by hurt. As long as I don't damage someone's being, body, that's what they mean by that. They define hurt very narrowly. What about wounded hearts for people? Is that hurting somebody? What about crushing the spirit? What about hurts on the inside? What about robbing someone of their innocence? What about destroying their joy? What about corrupting their wholesomeness or their better qualities? What about the loss of spiritual life or benefit for somebody? Is that hurting them? See, hurts come in many, many forms. And we've all hurt, we've all hurt people many, many times. People can have their hearts twisted and not even know it. A per you can take somebody and twist them and bend them towards bad things and they're, they're not even aware that that's what happened to them. So I didn't hurt them. They like what they're doing, but I've hurt them enormously. See, there's all kinds of ways to hurt people. In fact, that might be the worst kind of hurt, is to corrupt somebody and them not know it. Most of our man-made morality is just a justification for our own desires when we say things like that. As long as I don't hurt anybody. What about God? What if he is hurt by something we do? What does Paul say in Ephesians? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. What if it hurts him? Does that matter? Surely to hurt God would be the gravest sin. So, as a Christian, our only valid, certain understanding of good and evil has to come not from ourselves, but from God himself. Has to be that. Has to be something outside of us, above us. He made us. He knows us. He sees motives and desires even when we don't, when we cover them up even to our own selves. He sees every consequence of every act of ours even when we don't. So he has to be the determiner of what is good and what is evil. So our job then is what? To conform ourselves to his perspective because it is perfect and his perspective is unfailing and it's true because his knowledge is infinite and his being is completely holy and good. So God defines good and evil. So if you go back to Romans chapter 12 verse 2, remember what it said? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You must be metamorphosized, changed, transformed in your mind to think like he does. That is in conformity with his wisdom and his truth. Cling to what God says is good. In another interesting place, that word cling appears, speaks eloquently to our responsibility before God. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 10. I'm going to read you a kind of a lengthy paragraph, and it comes in sort of at the end, but just follow the flow of what Moses is saying as God revealed it. Uh, Deuteronomy 10:12. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and love him? and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes which I am commanding you today for your good. That's love. 
Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you, above all peoples as it is this day. Circumcise then your heart and stiffen your neck no more, for the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for the alien, for you are aliens in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God and shall serve him and cling to him. And you shall swear by his name. He is your praise and he is your God who has done these great and awesome things for you which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons and all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. That's a great passage. But there it is. It's in verse 20. You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him, and cling to him. Same word. Cling to what is good. Cling to him. There's no higher good than he is, right? What higher good is there than God? So cling to him and cling to all the things that he says are right. Let's move on in Romans 12 to verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Now, verse 10 uses a different Greek word for love than was used earlier when he says, let love be without hypocrisy. Actually, it combines two words together. I don't want to get all Greek on you. I hate doing that. But it's not agape this time. It's phileo and, and storge, which is a, another kind of word for affection or love. In fact, it actually combines these words together. This has a, the flavor of familial or fraternal brotherly love, the brotherhood. Philostorgi in Philadelphia. That's like love loving in the love of the brother. You know what I mean? It's like just piling it on. That's the way you do it in ancient language when you want to emphasize something. You pile it on. And that's what he's doing. He's piling on love words. Philadelphia. That's not a city. That's a kind of affection. That's an actual word. That's why they named the city Philadelphia. Who founded Pennsylvania? Very good. Good young man. Lives on the East Coast. William Penn III. And he was a what? A Quaker. Right. And he named the city Philadelphia, right out of the Bible, right out of this text, maybe. Brotherly love. There's a kind of loyalty and a big-hearted devotion in Philadelphia. I mean, not the city, I mean uh, the Bible here. Brotherly love, that's what he's talking about. Brotherly love. Phila is love, Adelphia means brother. It's that sort of comrades-in-arms affection, teammate kind of affection. You know, there are certain settings where bonds of brotherhood are formed and not easily broken. Jonathan and David in the Old Testament are probably the greatest example of a, that bond of male friendship. The Bible even says it was a love beyond the love that men have for women. It's that guy thing, you know, the way David and Jonathan loved one another. It's different. That guy thing, it's, 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 uh, in some ways, it's, now David loved women. In fact, he never loved a woman he didn't marry. <laughs> he loved a girl, he just married her, you know, right on the spot. As soon as you think, gosh, he found happiness, he'd marry somebody else, you know. And uh, he had all these wives running around. But, you know, that male thing, the thing he had with Jonathan, it was because there's no sexual tension or dimension to it. It's, it's not clouded by uh, romance and gender issues and jealousies. It's friendship, you know, male friendship, brotherhood. It's one of the great loves that there is. 
And of course, it can be a sisterly thing too. But the New American Standard Bible uh, translates verse 10, be devoted to one another in Philadelphia in brotherly love. But there's no verb, be devoted. It just says, it just uses an, an adjective which combines these other love words. Lovingly affectionate and brotherly love to one another. That's really what it means. It's just piling it on. Now it's talking about primarily church relationships here. This kind of affection should mark us out. This is the sign of Christianity. Deep, genuine affection for one another. Church life is supposed to involve that kind of camaraderie and fraternal bond that is one of the true joys of life. Now that doesn't always happen. Uh, in church life or, or for every individual in a church it's not always easy to achieve and if you don't find that being a part of your church experience you probably need to step out a little more because I think there's plenty of people around to love you that way but you need to kind of jump out be brave build some relationships come to stuff get to know people because that's the way it's supposed to be and it doesn't always get to that level of great profound bonding but at the minimum at the minimum it should mean that when we see other church people our hearts are warmed and it's like a pleasure and it's like hey there's my brother or hey there's my sister that should be the kind of reaction in church life that's where Paul's getting to here you know these are the terms we are called upon to think on with regard to one another this Philadelphia brotherly genuinely brotherly affection and it goes back to that whole conception of the church we found in verse 5 of chapter 12 so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another there's just much more to church than a casual acquaintance much more biblically oh we're both in the PTA or oh they're in my 4-H club it's not like that it's more than that it's supposed to be more than that in the church brothers and sisters see one body church is not a civic organization it's not church believe it or not is a divine appointment you know the word church means to be called out You're, it's people that are called out of the world and divinely appointed and gifted into a fellowship linked by faith and a common devotion and a common adoption by God into his family. That is true of the church universal all across the world, but it manifests itself in the local church in a very particular way. That local expression of Christ's body where you live and where you worship. That needs to be there. So Paul, you know, Paul told um, Timothy how to regard his congregation. In 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2, he says, How do you deal with people, Timothy? He says, Don't rebuke older men. He says, Appeal to them as a father. And to younger men as brothers. To older women as mothers. And to younger women as sisters. And then he adds, In all purity. Um, that's the way it's supposed to be. It's family. It's sisterly, brotherly, mother, motherly, fatherly. That's the kind of relationships we're supposed to have. It's not congregant, parishioner. Greetings, parishioner Kevin. How are you today? Well, it's not like that. It's not supposed to be. That's not the attitude. It's not acquaintance. It's brother, sister, mother, father. That's the way even the pastor is supposed to think about it. Familial. So when Paul says be devoted to one another in brotherly love, 
That's what he's talking about. Then he says, in the second half of verse 10, give preference to one another in honor. Give preference means to let other people go before you in receiving honors. How much credit from people do you need to be content? How much do you need? Hopefully not too much, (laughs) because church life, again, is not a competition for honors. Although it certainly can become that way. That's why this is here. He's saying don't let it happen to you that you need earthly honors to be content or happy. There's a secret about successful Christian service. The secret is it's service. It's done for the Lord. That's, That's the big secret about Christian service. It's not done for prizes or kudos or pats on the back or anything else. Whether we get earthly recognition or not doesn't matter because if you believe, you know that God sees. Am I pleasing Him? Am I conducting myself in a manner that represents His kingdom? That's what matters. Is God getting my best effort? That's what matters. And honestly, this principle carries over into the secular work world too because that work is to be done for the Lord as well, right? Colossians 3.22, Slaves and all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. It is said that, you know, that President Reagan understood really well this principle of giving preference to one another in honor. That's rare in a politician, believe me. Some people in his cabinet tended to be headline grabbers, you know, get out there and do something, and maybe it was something he had the idea for and was promoting and pushing, and they went out there and they were supposed to be his front men representing the president, and they would sort of take credit for it and talk themselves up because they had political plans for their own futures like that. And some of Reagan's more loyal, uh, close people would say, you know what so-and-so's doing? They're taking all the credit for your idea. They're, trying to, they're out there for themselves. And Reagan would always say, this is what the inner working people say, yes, let them take credit for it. As long as it gets done. As long as it gets done, let them take credit for it. That is an unusual quality. As long as they are moving our principles forward and succeeding, let him have the credit, he would say. Letting others have the honor before us is an attitude of service. If the president can have a servant's heart, if he, the president can do that if his concern is the national interest and not, him, not himself and his own vanity. That's exactly the way it should be with us on a much deeper level even. One of my favorite illustrations of Jesus appears in Luke's Gospel. I like it because it's so politically incorrect. Not, not even according to modern church thinking is this like right. And you never hear about this. You know, it's not one of those common things people talk about because it's so kind of extreme. It doesn't fit in with our self-esteem dominated sort of Christianity. You wonder how the church ever survived all those centuries without using the word self-esteem except as a sin. I mean, you really, you really wonder how we ever got along. But maybe they were busy doing other things in those centuries. But in Luke chapter 17, like spreading the gospel around the world, but um, in Luke 17, there's a story about a man and his servant. In fact, Jesus tells it so that you are in the place of the master. He tells the story so that you're supposed to put yourself in the place of the master. You might want to turn to Luke 17 real quick. The master, you, are at home doing masterly things, whatever. The servant is in the field, working hard. He's either plowing or tending sheep, which is not just sitting around, it's a lot of work, and doing all this stuff. And then in verse 7 of Luke 17, 
Jesus says, Which of you, having a slave, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat? And a lot of modern people say, Well, I would say that. You've been working so hard, come in and sit down and eat. Let me get you something. Can I get you a sandwich? They're saying, but will he not say to him, see, this is the way the world was in the first century. This is real life. But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me until I have eaten and drunk and afterwards you will eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? The guy comes in after a hard day's work and it's dinner time. And the expectation is that the field hand now becomes the house slave. He cleans up. He cooks dinner for me. He serves the master. Then he gets to eat himself. And he receives no thanks because that's just what slaves do. That's life in first century Palestine. It gets worse. Jesus expects us to draw an application from this for ourselves. And here's the application. Verse 10. So you too, now you're the slave. When you have done all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. If you do everything that God expects you to do, everything, without fail, you should say, I'm an unworthy slave. I've only done what he's asked me to do. That's different. How many 21st century people even understand an attitude like this, let alone have one themselves? And look, I'm all for recognition and encouragement and patting people on the back, but no Christian should need human honor or thank yous for doing the Lord's work. I mean, it's nice to have it, and I like being encouraged just like anybody else likes it. But you know, that's not what it's all about. And if you never get it, it doesn't make any difference. It's what you owe to God, and He will see your service. And He delights to reward people because we're sons, we're not slaves. But our attitude should be as servants and not pouting children. Jesus Himself said the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. So give preference to one another in honor seems mild in comparison with the service of Christ, doesn't it? That's all he's asking us to do. We've done only what we ought to have done. There's a growing cultural movement to sort of dispense with having honors or honoring achievement so that nobody feels left out, you know? Either everybody gets the same prize or nobody should get a prize. You know that whole sort of thing? It's been kind of creeping up on us and now it's getting even more extreme. We should play games where nobody wins. We shouldn't have valedictorians in high school and graduation things because not everybody got the same grades or academic awards or honors achievements or Dutterman letters for sports jackets or whatever because not everybody can have one. You know, I hope that never happens. But that's the way things are sort of headed. Not only should excellence be honored, but for those that don't make it, and I never made it, (laughs) the number one guy ever in my whole life, except I beat Katie at... Chinese checkers the other day. I was really happy. Uh, the LeBaron's little girl, I, I, I whooped her. <laughs> but you know what? She wasn't even grateful. <laughs> Nobody complimented me either. But you know, 
it's not only good for those that win, it's good for those that lose. It's, it's good to be the one that slips on the ice and have to stand on the number two platform when everybody in the world expected you to be on the number one platform when you have to settle for silver. It's a wonderful opportunity for character development. Winning has moral challenges. So does losing. Winning to be gracious, losing to be gracious and good sports. Sportsmanship is a really important concept. Making everything even robs winners and losers of the opportunity to learn sportsmanship and chivalry and good behavior. The other guys won. Good for them. He lost. Hey, that's okay. Keep trying. Those same principles apply in churches. Good sportsmanship, if you will. The servant's heart. Church is not a competition, but people can create their own social competitions, ministry competitions, recognition competitions, leadership's attention competitions. That's just silly stuff. Let it all go. Don't even worry about it. Serve the Lord. You know, I guess it comes down to this. Isn't God a sufficient audience for your deeds and good behavior? He needs to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of Scripture, Lord. We pray for the grace to love as you would have us love, to give preference to one another in honor. We pray that we would have the grace to hate evil and cling to good. We pray that we would be pleasing to you and conformed to your mind and your desires. We thank you for the word of God, which always challenges us. Lord, don't let us give up. Challenge us to move forward, press on, and achieve a level of godliness that would bring a smile from your face. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.